Imagine you apply for a job at a company and you're rejected. Six months later, that same company approaches you and asks you to apply for another job. Would you? Hello, listeners, and welcome to Squeezing the Orange of Social Science, a podcast co-hosted by myself, comedian Akin Omobitan, and Professor Dan Cable. On each episode, the two of us pick apart, peer-reviewed and published social science papers, and we squeeze them for their best bits so that you, the listener, don't have to sift through pages and pages of academic literature. What's up, Dan? Hey, hey, hey. How's it going today? I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling really good. Feeling nice. healthy. I'm feeling well. Uh, and I'm up for squeezing this uh, this paper. I'm How, ready to lean in. I mean, lean out. Lean out. I, I don't yeah, know lean which in, one lean I need out. to do. Uh, <laughs> I love this paper. This is uh, another one of these tour de force papers. So I'm thrilled to jump in here. Um, this is by Reina Brands and Isabel Fernandez Mateo. And it is literally called Leaning Out. How negative recruitment experiences shape women's decisions to compete for executive roles published in the Administrative Science Quarterly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, so I guess let's I guess we should kind of like dive into what this is this is all about and having 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 do- having dove into it previously and having sifted through all of the 30 plus pages this seems to be about addressing the gender gap in high level roles in organizations. That's right. So I guess when we're looking at like high level executives, CEOs, the people on chairs, uh, and why there's such a big difference between those seats that are held by men and by women. And there was a, a tasty, I say tasty, there was a tasty stat in here as well, which said that women hold about 16% of senior executive roles in Fortune 500 companies and only 5% CEO positions. You've probably heard that quote, that in these roles, there are more people named Robert than there are women. Yeah, if I, I, have, mean, a, if I have a daughter, I'm going to name her Robbie. <laughs> so, is that a plan? <laughs> like, go make some money I hope for that Papa Rob. <laughs> So one thing about this is it looks at this idea of how the same reality of, say, applying for one of these executive positions and being rejected, because most people obviously aren't going to get the job. You're going to have way more people applying than get the job, obviously. The way that that rejection is coded might be really different for men or women based on that feeling of belonging in that environment. Yeah, and it also leans into, oh God, this lean in and lean out is going to be dropping all over this episode. But I guess it also leans into this idea of what each gender put more emphasis on during the recruitment process and also during the rejection as well. So uh, the study lets us know that women place more emphasis on fair treatment but they also perceive treatment to be less fair when they are rejected as well. So it's, I guess it's this kind of idea that when we're going through the process, so if I am applying for a job, for example, I, I want to, the way that I'm treated lets me know about an organization. So like that whole process, how I'm handled by HR, um, when I'm in the interview room. So I'm looking for things during that process that will give me an idea of what it might be like working for that organization. Um, and then also this idea that when men and women go through a similar process, if they're both rejected, the, the way that they perceive that treatment is going to alter slightly. I think that that part that you just talked about there really gets back to this belonging uncertainty. You know, if you know that you are perceived to not really fit in 
because everybody else around you is a male, that really is going to cause you to question whether you should be in that environment, which is then going to maybe cause you to interpret that environment differently. And that's something that, you know, as a male, it's really easy to forget that. You know, if most of the people in these senior roles are males and then you are a male, it's like, obviously, this is not even an issue. That is a non-issue. This whole, do I belong or not at that level? It's, it's just not there. And I think that males, I'll just speak for me though, it's pretty easy to forget that because, you know, we sort of go through life, I'll just get and speak for me, sort of having affirmative action, like for you, like the whole system is built for you. And then you sort of like have all these legs up, but you forget about that as you go through life. They got these tailwinds are like pushing you through because you're like fitting all the categories and you just forget that that's not how it is for other people. And I think a paper like this really does a great job of highlighting um, just how it would feel to be questioning that belonging. Yeah. And we're, we're going to be looking at women, especially in this study, because the study does. But it's also important to, I guess, crack this open slightly a bit more as well. It's you can you could really apply this to any situation where as an individual, you go into it feeling like you are the outsider. And so now you're going to be especially sensitive to the different positive and negative experiences that you encounter during that process. Yeah, that's really great. I mean, because especially in this podcast, it's great to think about the science as generalizable. In here, the data, as you say, is all about men versus women and how they kind of react to this rejection uh, of a job. But for instance, you could even look at first generation students whose parents didn't go to uni and then going off to uni and all the people around you have parents and parents and their parents have gone like to uni. Or you could think about, um, you know, if you were Hispanic and it was mostly uh, an all-white university or something like this, you'd have some of the same um, dynamics at play. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at the free studies which they took part in. Uh, so uh, kindly, it's uh, it's just a free. And as often with these things, they build on one another. So the first one, they managed to somehow get a hold of about five years worth of data from a, they called them like a, a search agent or something, but basically it's a bunch a, of, it's a recruitment consultancy. Sometimes called headhunters. Yeah. Sometimes I think they call themselves that to just, that just sounds cooler, doesn't it? it? Is. Rather than being like, oh, I'm a recruitment consultant, what do you do for a living? I hunt heads. Yes, it's, uh, yes. It really is very tribal. It's yeah. Very, oh my goodness, wow. Yeah, it's like, just chill out, man. Like, just freaking, are you going to get me an interview or not? Like, being a card that has headhunter written on it, like... Nor do I want my headhunter. Yeah. Frankly, I mean. It does sound good when you are headhunted. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that you can boast about if you are is out and about. Oh, totally. No, totally. That's a really cool thing. Because that's like, oh, I didn't go to them. They oh, came to me, yeah, if, yeah. But you don't need that vernacular, do you? Like, you don't necessarily need to say, like, my head was hunted no. to still feel that vibe of, like, yeah, they're after me. Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. was headhunted for I, the role. I, I, yeah, I got yeah, a call yeah. for this I was busy role. minding my own business. Exactly. On... <laughs> that's an important point, actually. Yeah. That's seriously an important point. Because Go for it. one of the things that's so important about this study is these aren't roles where the people knew exactly what company they were applying Ooh, for. yes. That's hugely important in this case. The headhunter company, this executive search firm would like have this role maybe it'd be a ceo role a coo role whatever they have this open role and they develop like 60 people like a basically like a list of 60 people who might be good for that role yeah and then they would headhunt they would go out and like, get those people and say like would you be willing to apply for this type of a job and that's pretty cool in a way because it's um it's this like naturally occurring 
almost like a naturally occurring experiment in a way because you're applying for something you don't really know anything about it much yet. Yeah. You haven't had the interview in other words. Yes, but you also already feel... I think this is one of the difficult things about this process as well, and I believe why rejection kind of might pack a bit more of a punch. You could be happily... Like, minding your own business, probably, like, in a job, you're doing pretty well. You're like, you know, what's the next thing that I'm going to go for Average within this organization? This 160 grand? Yeah. And so you're like, making, like, top dollars? Yeah, you're doing pretty fine. Phone rings, you pick it up. It's like, hey, I got this lucrative offer, high-level position, more money. And you'd be like, okay, cool, tell me more. They do. And so now they're putting you forward for this. You're already going to feel a bit like, you're going to be feeling yourself. You're going to be a bit like, oh. This is nice. Oh, like, fancy. Yeah, my, my name seems to be getting around. And now you go into this process not necessarily aware that that agency has put forward 60 people. There's probably open applications for it as well. So let's say there's a modest 100 people going to go. You've now entered, you've entered the Thunderdome, essentially. 100 people enter, one person's coming out employed. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess this study is about how that initial, I guess, battle royale, how does that leave people when they come out of it? And how likely are they to enter that domain yeah. again? Yeah, that's really Knowing good. that this might be the previous organization that told me, hey, yep. we don't really like your stuff. Yes, yeah, that's it. I mean, they've really said that, I think, well, because it kind of brings up how unlikely it is that you're going to get the job and how likely it is you're going to be rejected. And anybody that makes it up into that C-suite, they're going to have to apply and get rejected for a lot of jobs. And one of the things I think this paper is showing is if it's the case that after getting rejected, your interpretation of that is that's because I don't fit in here and I wasn't treated right. So next time I'm not going to apply, it helps show this is one of the things, one of the headwinds holding women back. And I guess that's a bit depressing, but it's also very illuminating, I think. So when they do get contacted, and they said, hey, do you want to apply for this job? We've, we're hunting your head. Do you want to be applied for this job? <laughs> the candidate has one of three options. And number one is they can just decide not to participate. So I'm not going to do the formal interview. I'm going to decline to interview. Then they could say, uh, the consultant could say, you're not suitable for that role. That's where the search <laughs> Which is additionally annoying oh, as well. Oh, <laughs> ouch. And then the third one is they do go ahead and interview with the search firm. And in this case, with all this data, and I mean, there is a lot of really, really sweet data here. It is um, complete data on 23,555 observations. That's 10,292 people who then, you know, across all these different years, these, these four years, um, would have applied maybe for different jobs. So with this massive data set, the dependent variable, the thing that they sort of were able to predict is whether or not a candidate, when they were sort of uh, approached, did they agree to proceed to that formal interview with the search firm? Yeah, and it's, it's, it seems to be a continuous layering of opportunities to get rejected. So you pick up your phone and it's like, okay, we've got this uh, opportunity. And then during that conversation, that could be your first stage of rejection. But also, if you now accept it, the search company, the, the recruiters, are now going to put your information forward to the organization. So at that point, 
you may or may not get an interview. Yeah. So there's yeah. a possible opportunity for rejection yes. at that stage. Yeah. But then if you do go in for an interview, you then have the possibility of then being rejected. So yeah, at each a, yeah, level absolutely. of it, it can be quite, it can yes. be quite an emotional yes. toll trying to get a job. Yes. It's very self-threatening to be evaluated and then to be rejected. Now in this, I just want to be clear about, they did something really cool. This is that naturally occurring experiment where by looking at whether they even interviewed with the search firm, that's kind of sweet. Yes. It cleans up all that other stuff around. Did you even meet with the recruiter in the company? This is just, would you even meet enough to be put forward and you haven't yet been rejected for this job. That's actually a really important way to like, it sharpens and cleans up the dependent variable. And that's about as close as possible to a clean proxy of actually applying for the job without going through the process of that evaluation. Yeah. So that's kind of nice. And we, we can crunch some of the, the numbers from the results here. So um, I guess as the researchers did expect, if you have been previously rejected, and this is for both uh, both genders, both men and women, if you have been previously je- rejected, there is a higher likelihood that you will decline the formal interview for whatever reasons you may have. However, there was a, a large, I guess, difference in terms of men and women. So it's men's probability of declining an interview if they'd previously been rejected was about 14.6% higher. So if they'd previously been rejected, there was like a 14.6% higher chance that they'd be a bit like, nah, I don't really want to like I'm go good. with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine. Um, however, with women, I believe this was about 22.3%. So we're looking at about 7.7% difference here. Now, this is very important because this is this is the journey to the top. So when we talk about this 16% of women, like those 16% of women have gone through this journey. So on one hand, kind of got to throw out some Mm. fist bumps. Mm. Like for, for, I'm going to throw fist bumps out for everyone who has managed to become like a CEO or be in like these top tier positions, but especially for these 16% of women, because they've kind of done so against the odds. Mm. Like as much as Mm. we can talk about um, fairness in terms of hiring and trying to remove as many biases in that process as possible. We're looking at a, I'm going to say a system. Uh, so like when we talk about men and women in the workplace and equality, and we can all kind of like hold hands and sing Kumbaya. However, it's still relatively new having women in the workplace. So even if and you these can, senior roles in particular, and right? these senior roles yeah. in particular. So even if we could get the numbers to about 50, 50, it's still women in a an organization or a system which hasn't necessarily been designed considering that women would be in this place. So a lot of those 16%, and I'll probably not necessarily speak for them, but my assumption is there's probably a lot that they've had to adjust about who they are as individuals so that they could find themselves in that position, as opposed to those positions being open to qualities that we might consider more feminine. That's right. That's right. And I think... What you've done is led us really nicely to the second study. Woo! Yeah, man. That's called a transition, people. Try to keep up. So I... (laughs) Uh, What I really like about this is study one shows that there is uh, this phenomenon in the real world. You know, this is not a lab study. These are people's real lives. And they're making decisions to not pursue other roles now because of something that happened to them and they interpreted. But it doesn't really show us much about why. 
It doesn't start to like unpack what's called the mechanism. Like, what is it that's going on for women and not men here? And the paper does a really good job. You know, if, if you, if you went and grabbed this one, I think you'd really like reading this part about considering some logical reasons why. And one of them they're calling the greater waiting effect. And it's this idea that if you're going to be rejected for one of these executive roles, it might be that you expect to be treated like you don't belong. That's the quickest way I can say. You might kind of know that it, women don't give a fair shake here, and you're kind of looking for that. Just to jump in, Dan, Dan as well there, it's this is difficult on both ends, and I, I guess I'm trying to be as balanced as possible. It's difficult on both ends because I would assume that as an organization, you might design what you believe to be a fair recruiting process. You can design it to be fair. However, when, and I'm just going to group people who consider themselves as outsiders. So I guess my question is, as an organization, is it your responsibility now to design a process that is fair for all in terms of we just have one way of doing things, or do you have to now start designing in, I guess, differences to consider, okay, we're kind of aware that maybe our organization is majority, I don't know, African, or maybe our organization is majority 18 to 22-year-olds. So if someone who's a bit older does a, like how, it, it, it seems to be this weird thing, because if you have a company that is majority, let's say, uh, Africans who are like between the age of like 25 and 30 and but you want to broaden that out it's like so what do you now do to like attract people and is is that then a fair way yeah. because it starts to like yeah. get murky and I guess I say this because it seems to be a bit of a pressure on an organization where if you are just opening up your applications to everyone people can approach you with I guess preconceived mm-hmm. ideas that this isn't going to be fair on them so there's kind of like a yeah. bit of a, a pressure yeah. on the company i think you've stated that right and i think that that's part of this double bind yeah it really is very tricky there's a double bind for women as well that uh brings a lot of this up where especially in these leadership roles the stereotype in lots of people's heads is you know this masculine dominant aggressive pushy ceo demanding you know very what you might say masculine so you're kind of expecting that and then you many many people have this stereotype of women which is like and that's not them yeah but then if a woman acts aggressive and demanding and pushy and then they're like oh well that's not how a woman should act it's so, so difficult like, right? you're not getting maybe maybe what you're kind of exposing is there might be a double bind for companies as well yeah and uh it's messy uh, this paper you know it's not about it's a tour de force in showing this is how the world seems and to women versus men. And here's one of the reasons why we don't see as many women in senior leadership roles. This is not a paper on, and here's how to solve that problem. For me, that's still really, really valuable. I mean, literally, oh, t- oh, totally. literally oh, t- for me personally, just to read this and be reminded of the tailwinds that I have and the headwinds that many face is just hugely valuable. Totally. So yeah, so they did want to, I guess, start to look at or try to unpeel, could we call it like more of the, the psych, I guess the why. Yeah, the why. So yeah, they wanted to understand the why. So we could acknowledge that there is this difference in the terms of if men and women have both been rejected by an organization, 
women are more likely to reject an opportunity to re-interview or reapply. So they wanted to know why that is. So they developed a a survey. That's right. And you social scientists, you love yourselves to survey. Any opportunity. That's what we do best. (laughs) With this one, they went up to um, people that made more than 150,000. Sweet. And there were 41 people. Okay, so they went out to, I think it was like 140 people. 41 of those people wrote nonsense and gibberish. I highlighted that on my notes as well. And I was like, I was scratching my head. I don't know what to do As to it. why that may be. So we don't have time to go into it. Oh, we're going to go into oh, it. We are? Just not, no, just not, yeah. Okay. No, I think I found out why. Okay. <laughs> and it's in your survey. I say you as in like. Look, I am now. Yeah, I'm, you're now representing. Yeah, because <laughs> oh you social scientists are like, Hey, you got like a few minutes to complete this uh, survey for us. And you're like, yeah, sure, man. I'll do my bit to advance uh, discourse and try to help society level out. And then you start asking them questions. And these are like, what? this is what they were looking at. So they, they reached out to these like, um, like a hundred, it's like uh, 99 people, like 54 women, 45 men, all earning over 150K average age 45 they've been working for about like two decades or so they agree to do your survey and this is what they're looking for describe your most recent experience of being rejected in a role yes some of them were writing gibberish because they were probably still burnt from the experience that they had (laughs) and all of a sudden they're a bit like oh could you tell me in great detail what that felt like so they were looking at three things which is like so they this is like asking people who were not offered a job that they wanted and not only was it that they weren't offered a job that they wanted, they had been in probably like the most advanced stages of the application. So they'd probably shaken the CEO's hands. They'd been in a nice office. They've seen what could potentially be their corner office. And then like six months later down the line, they're, they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'll do a survey. Nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Essentially, like all of this is like built up and it's just like, nah, we'd rather not have you. And then you're asked to talk about it. So I think what they're talking and saying is, is gibberish here my assumption is some people just started to really vent yes and there's some indications yes. Yes. of venting as well which we'll kind okay. of like look at okay well in terms of this actual study <laughs> of the 99 people who did it and the, you know, not the 41 who did gibberish the outcome variable the thing that they were going to predict was imagine the tomorrow the company wrote um to you and said hey apply for this other job in your you know it's appropriate for you uh and the question is would you apply you know that kind of is the, what they asked these folks and then they also measured stuff about how they'd been treated so that's called procedural justice were the procedures that you experience while applying for that job fair and just and so they, these would be items like the recruitment procedures were free of bias or like uh, i was able to influence the decisions arrived at by the recruitment process and so they like measure that stuff and they both coded some stuff you know in terms of like the free form non-gibberish um, responses but then that also allowed them to do a statistical analysis and that's pretty strong I mean you put those two things together this is almost like its own standalone study within these this whole paper yeah do, do you want to kind of talk a little bit about what the results were um, do you want me to jump in and do that what do you reckon um well I guess like so in terms of the results, some of the things, and we can kind of like bounce this back and forth between us, but it seems that like about 30% of respondents, they did mention issues of fit. So I think this kind of goes back to this idea of belonging and a sense of belonging. So this was very important for, for most people. And this was something along the lines of, I think this company would be a good fit for me versus this idea of it would only be worth my consideration if the role was a good fit. And 
part of this as well is like people discover this very often during interview processes. When you apply for a job or you're informed of one, there's just like bullet point things in terms of the organization does this. They're looking for that. But it's through actual conversations with the individuals who work there and are hiring that you do get a better sense of what it is that you're really letting yourself in for. But they also looked at things such as like, what were the opportunities for development? Will they be better or worse off? And some of these results for me, it seemed to be along this idea of kind of like cushioning yourself against the rejection. Mm, mm. So it's like, okay, I've been rejected. However, here are some of the elements that make me feel like maybe I would want to pursue it or maybe I would not want to pursue it. And all of these are, are rational and worth consideration yeah. if you are yeah. going to, to, to join an organisation. Um, I don't know. I think that one of the things we could do is jump in and say that they looked at men and women's predicted probability of this definitely will not apply or probably not apply. And just to jump to what they found, it was 14% checked out if you were male and 20, almost 29% checked out if you were female. So I think that right off the bat, just this idea of uh, huge differences, you know, doubling basically, um, when you're rejected and you are a female, that that's a, a very large uh, percentage difference, I guess. Totally. Put that out there. And what else would we say about this? It's consistent with their theory um, in the sense that it focused on these perceptions of procedural justice, not just because I felt bad that I was rejected. Men and women both felt bad being rejected. That wasn't the predictor. It's that women felt bad being project, uh, rejected, but then also perceived that they weren't treated fairly. And that's the sort of thing that mediated or that really carried the effect. Yeah, and this kind of set up why they felt the need to do the third study as well. Because now if uh, if Dan and I both go for a similar role or the same role, yeah, Dan and I both go for the same role within the same company, one of us gets the job, the other one doesn't. Or even if we're both rejected, we might just both feel a very different way about how that process went. We might both be looking at different things. So, for example, Dan being a white dude, me being a black guy, there might be things where if they're talking about personality or asking certain questions, I might start feeling a, a certain way as a bit like, oh, is that because I'm black? Or on the other hand, it might be me being um, a Brit Dan being from the States, certain things that Dan has asked, if it's about kind of like identity, he might be a bit like, oh, is this because I'm from mm -hmm. the States? So mm -hmm. what they wanted to do with the first study is try to make it as objective as possible. So in the third study, the idea behind this was, how can we do a bit of an experiment to see, and, and you might be able to like jump in on this with me, Dan, because my understanding of the third experiment is we're going to give... We're going to get like about roughly 50% men, 50% women. Yep. And of those men and women, half of them are going to get an acceptance. Half of them are going to get a rejection for both men and women. But they're all going to get the same information. And out of that information, I think what they were trying to see is what are the differences in what's inferred from that process? Because right. it's all the same, but through the, the same information that's given, what's inferred and what, I guess what why are there differences yeah, so they're yeah. looking at why is it that even if you both went through what could be described as the objective same that's experiences right. Right. why are you re reacting responding in different ways yes and that's the power of these um these laboratory experiments 
So what you give up on a little bit is the realism, but they've already shown that this is happening in the real world. So now what we're going to do is we're going to increase the control so we can really understand if you're experiencing the identical setting, how are the responses to that identical setting different? So what they did is they essentially brought in these men and these women, and then they gave them um, what you might call like... Uh, um, a vita or a resume about a person that's basically a, a record of a candidate who had applied for an executive role. And then what each person had to do was write a first person account. They'd like basically write a day in the life of that person. And the men did that for somebody that was named Michael Barrett. And the women did that for a female candidate, Michelle Barrett. But everything about the resume was identical. Otherwise, that's the really important part of it. And so, um, they got the candidate's age. They got the performance rating at these four different steps at the resume screen, at the resume screening, the interview with the recruiter, the interview with the head of human resources and the interview with the CEO. This is quite in depth, especially like it's strong. This is strong. And usually when I see some of these, um, I guess like surveys or experiments, this feels like a lot of depth. Yeah. Like you're really creating. Yeah world here this sounds like these individuals who i would imagine don't really have that much time spare on their hands That's from right. what i observe about ceo lifestyles and their 80 hour a week it, kind of amazing. Like happenings to really like dive into this like they really like created like a rich field uh to kind of like to play with That's and to, it. to observe because no, thank you that's really nice because now what happens is after they've read this they've got this day in the life narrative in their brain but it's the same narrative for the men and the women and then what they were told to do is now put yourself in the shoes of that candidate and go ahead and answer these questions and some of the questions were those same justice items around like was the procedure fair or not so they use that same validated scale and then they just look to see whether or not they would reapply for that role based on that, if you were in those shoes. And so that's, you know, again, each study has strengths and limitations. So what you give up on here a little bit is this notion of like, put yourself in their shoes. So on the one hand, that means it's a little bit stepped away from reality. On the other hand, this allows us to infer causality. We get to say it's because of being a man versus a woman that led to these differences. So do you want to talk about the results? These are some pretty strong results again. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, with the results as well, just from like the base, it's like, so they were asked to indicate how rejected they felt given the outcome of their application. And it's quite important to note that, and I think Dan did just now mention this, for both the men and women, both people, if they were unsuccessful, they both perceived that rejection. And I know you did mention this already, Dan, but it's very important to note that in this experiment that they did, just as like a baseline, mm. they were just able to at least acknowledge that both men and women both felt this rejection. Um, but for women, there are reaction triggers, and this is me quoting from from, uh, from the paper here. For women, reaction triggers belonging, uncertainty, priming them to perceive less fair treatment, which in turn makes them unwilling to apply to a previously rejecting firm. I'm, I'm, these, my notes are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading, I'm like, what the hell did I... How did I... However, so it's this idea that for for women, like the the process kind of, if you're rejected, the process triggers this belonging uncertainty. 
Uh, however, that's not the case for men. So they were able to find this through their studies, that men were just a bit more willing to reply, get, apply again in the future had they been rejected. I'm, I just I just bounced all Oh, no, I think, I think that, <laughs> nominally that's correct. <laughs> I love this one. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to mention before we sort of w- went to close and takeaways and so on here. There was this one figure, uh, it was figure 2B actually, and it really cleaned it all up for me. What it basically showed is that this separate analysis for men versus women in terms of this sequence. It's, their, it's basically their theory, which is when you're rejected, you might experience some belonging uncertainty. If you experience belonging uncertainty, then you're going to think this isn't fair. I'm, I'm seeing unfairness everywhere. And if that's the case, then I'm not going to apply again because you've already signaled this isn't going to be a fair um, treatment of, for me. So what they then did is they did that for men versus women. And it's all in being the man versus the woman. So when a man is rejected, they don't statistically significantly feel that they don't belong. There is, it's, it's almost a null effect. It's basically a zero effect between those two. If you're a woman and you have this rejection, there's this huge statistically significant substantial effect that now you start to question whether I even belong. Yeah. Once that happens, everything else just falls into place. Another way to say it is if there is a man that experiences belonging uncertainty because of race, because of background, because of socioeconomic status, because of whatever, if there's a man that experiences that, he too sees injustice everywhere. Yes. He too sees this just isn't fair. And so that's quite important and quite powerful. And to see it in that figure was really useful for me. Yeah, and I would I would imagine that for women, especially if you if we look at the stat that we opened up with, about sixteen percent of them being CEOs or in those high exec positions, even before you've reached that level yourself, I think it seems to be kind of like normal reasoning to be a bit like, oh, this isn't weighted in my favor. So even going and I think I think again, this is why even going into certain processes, it's gonna be a bit of a cagier yeah. affair, because it's a bit like Oh no, I'm not. I'm not supposed to be there because even if I just look at the numbers, if I just look at what I can observe, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. Yep, yep. I think that's really important. I think also this idea of uh, an interpretation out there in the world where, oh, why aren't women in these positions? They don't want it. I think that a study like this really helps show, like, no, no, they definitely want it. Like, they're definitely applying for these roles. If they could get the job, they would definitely take the jobs. But when they're rejected and it's not if it's when because to get to these top roles you're gonna have to go through this again and again and again if what happens is that belonging uncertainty that is already endemic to the process is going to be one reason and just one reason but it's going to be one of the reasons that kind of causes them to hold themselves back from unfair treatment essentially yeah so yeah would that be your your key takeaway dan or is there is there something else you'd like to add You know, there's so much, actually, but the key thing that I'm going to reiterate for me is when I am refocused on the different experiences that women face relative to what I face, it just reminds me of that tailwind headwind thing. And I think that that I can never get too much of that in essence. It's, It's humbling. And it also is just a great reminder that even when you experience the same world, you're not experiencing the same world. 
because of what's going on when you're being headhunted. There's different stuff going on in the head, you know? And so I think that for me, that's just really helpful. And to the point you made earlier, that doesn't say, here's how to fix it. It's just really helpful to be aware that simply saying, well, anybody can apply doesn't mean it's a fair anybody will apply. Totally. Much agree. What about you? What would you say one of your key takeaways? Ooh, my, I think my key takeaway might be along the ideas of uh, a solution, but not a solution, but an action, which in terms of when we consider hiring, the hiring process, I, I don't work in HR. I don't know how much time is dedicated to that actual rejection process, because it seems here that if the rejection process isn't considerate of individuals as people, like just sending like an email or, you know, like, oh, unfortunately you've not been, that allows people to to infer what may have been that reason. Yeah. Whereas having a bit more of a humane process there, such as especially if someone is a strong candidate, if someone's a strong candidate, you're like, goodness me, this was a tight race. I don't know what all these HR peeps are doing, but it seems it's very much worth getting in touch with those people personally, perhaps like a phone call, maybe a bit more of a detailed email, just being a bit like, look, we love this. We love that. We love that. It's just, this just really like, just came down to like a tight dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And, and you didn't get it. We'd it's love the opportunity possibly to work with you in the future. So people might just feel a bit like I didn't get it, but it's not because of who I am. It's just because of who someone else is. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that that fair treatment, the emphasis on fair, humane treatment is, uh, it's an interesting takeaway. It's like common sense that isn't very common. <laughs> well, you know thing, yeah. It's like, yeah. here's, it's a form letter about three months late. So, okay. Um, in terms of wrapping this up, uh, I think that I really wanted to say thanks again. It's a joy to create these and we're actually getting pretty good traction now. And, you know, just thanks so to so many of you that are listening and sharing. And if right now you haven't done that yet, maybe you could just share it to one person. Just send it out to somebody and say, like, I think you'll like this one. And, uh, and if you like it enough on the iTunes, then please scroll on down and hit the five stars. It's like a campaign that we're running, I would say. So thanks very much for helping us out and thanks for listening. Awesome. Enjoy the rest of your lives, peeps. Ciao.